Blog Talk Radio.
with a good friend of mine who's a historian. I think he has a PhD now, David Whitson, and uh, William Alvarez, who's a Catholic apologist. We're going to talk about uh, the oldest copies of the Old Testament and uh, whether they were in Hebrew, Aramaic, or in Greek. Uh, we have Gina. Welcome, Gina. Welcome, Derek. Welcome, uh, we've got, uh, I think that's Romy. Yeah, welcome. And welcome, Jane. Uh, uh, so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be doing some live broadcasts, no retelecast. I think the last week of January, we will be doing a retelecast. Hey there, James. And um, after that, we will have a debate in first week of February with William Albridge and Muslim scholar Musharif Hussein on uh, the topic of icons and the use of worship. Uh, you know, actually, icons or, I guess, symbols are used in worship, even within Protestant circles. I, you know, I, I was uh, eight years in the Lutheran church as a pastoral assistant, and, uh, of course, we come down the, uh, right down the aisle with the cross, and uh, we, uh, of course, uh, do a lot of things that most evangelicals won't do in a service because we still have a very, I guess, sacramental uh, use of worship, which involves, of course, using certain items like a cross. Uh, I know that Catholics will do more and Orthodox will do more than just these crosses. They will also use a welcome Charles and Bridget. Welcome Bridget. They will use also um, uh, pictures of ancient saints. So I'm just wondering where my my brother Ralph Ricky is. Just give me a second so I can contact him uh, because he could have been on right now. Uh, we just had this. Excuse me, folks. I'm just wondering why my guest hasn't come on yet. And so I'm going to try to contact this person so that he can come on. I know he was really excited to come on and share his story. He has a blog site and a podcast himself. And... uh, Let me go ahead and contact you. He probably should have had his phone number. Hold on for a second, folks. I see uh, Alicia's here. Okay, great. Yeah, uh, I can give that information while I'm here. Uh, for those of you 
if you want to really check us out also, you can check us out not only on our archives for our podcast, blogtalkradio.com backslash outreach, but also uh, you can check us out on YouTube. And on YouTube, of course, I do some live videos. Uh, I've also done some live streams. I can tell you right now, you can catch a live stream on uh, on the issue of death and the afterlife. There's an entire live stream on the history of Christmas. And I plan on doing a live stream in February. I believe I'm going to do it on Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, I have done it on Facebook Live, but I've never done it on YouTube, so it'll be a PowerPoint presentation. The History of Christmas is a PowerPoint presentation, as well as The Death and the Afterlife is a PowerPoint presentation on live channel on YouTube. So look us up, Healing X Outreach, on YouTube. If, uh, Ralph, if that's you, press 1 so that I can uh, identify your number and put you, unmute you. I just, I, I see a couple people showing up here on the studio, and I just need him to press one if uh, Ralph Ricky is on the line. And, um, oh, and I'm in there. I don't, I don't, I, I guess I probably should have gotten his phone number. Oh, that's him, Paul, that's it. Hello, Ralph, is this you? Hey, man, uh, this is not Ralph, but I am Ralph, and uh, I'm familiar with his story, and I can get you his phone number if you're still interested in getting that, um, <laughs> depending on where you he should have been on by now, and I and I don't have. I think, him. I think possibly he might have been out hanging out with some friends last night, did a little bit of drinking, and got and got uh got a little bit hungover this morning. So it's possible he's just sleeping it off. But uh, okay. I came out. I came out of the same church he did. Uh, we kind of left about six or seven months apart. So. If you want, I can share a little bit of details about that church that he left while we're waiting for him to join the show, I suppose, if you're interested. Yeah, but I don't want you to give his number on, on the air. Uh, are you on Facebook right now? I am actually on Facebook, yeah. I can um, I can join your page and maybe put a uh, send a comment directly to you. Oh, oh could you, uh, if you could just... Um, uh, PM me his phone number. Private message me. Sure. Uh, let's see. <laughs> this is a uh, just yeah, we're trying to do that too. Everybody, I, I just uh, put up on uh, YouTube uh, Sally Peterson's testimony and also uh, an old podcast with me to really uh, mentors in the faith of mine that were Christian apologists, Robert Hommel and Dave Sherrell. You can check that out on the YouTube channel. All right, so I'm just going to wait for you to go ahead and, uh, and message that to me. And then we can, we can talk. 
up in your PM or two.
going to discuss this. Um, and it'll also dispel any notion about my personal self and my personal faith from those of you who may be wondering this. Uh, as you know, I'm good friends, really, really good friends with a Catholic apologist, William Albert Chuby, frequent guest, a frequent uh, debater on our program. <laughs> yeah, when we got nothing better to do than drink coffee. <laughs> I like that thing. Yeah. Well, I got a little more than that on my plan B. I always got something to talk about. <clears throat> so let's give them something to talk about, as old song says. <clears throat> um, a lot of times uh, I have had uh, William Albridge on, on this program for many, many years. He's a good friend of mine. He's Catholic. Everyone knows. And if you don't know, now you know, you know that I am an ardent Calvinist. I have served as a pastoral assistant in the Lutheran Church as a Calvinist. And uh, when I was a pastoral assistant in the Lutheran Church, I did not uh, impose my Calvinism behind the pulpit. And uh, Ketty, who is up here, she would know because she, she, was, she attended the church that I attended at the time when I was pastoral assistant. Um, also, my pastor of the Baptist church that I currently attend, um, uh, Pastor Wendell Stokes, uh, probably didn't know, and if he pops on here, if he pops on a couple times, probably didn't know that I was an ardent Calvinist because I never imposed my Calvinism on the pulpit when I preached. I preached at his church. I preached at Pastor Chris Ogney's church. He's a Lutheran pastor. Uh, I preached in several churches. And the only church where I actually preached um, anything related to Calvinism or the doctrines of grace, uh, Reformed theology, was actually at the church where I served as a senior pastor for a little bit, about maybe two years. First Baptist of Akakee, which actually was a KJV only fundamentalist church, but they would take me at you know they, they, whatever it was they they was they was ready to, to have a pastor because it was a church that was dying and of course eventually did die. Um, but um, I preached that um, my theology that I adhere to and that I have a leaning to. Now, you're probably saying, what does that have to do with Calvinism? I'm going to keep y'all checking on blog talk to see if, it, if, um, if Ralph shows up. Ralph, if you show up, press 1, so that I know it's you. Um, I, will, I will say this, that I have a uh, – uh, some people have even said because of uh, my friendliness with Calvin, Catholic, with Catholic. Is uh, cross the Tiber. Cross the Tiber, does. Well, there's a big problem with me crossing the Tiber. One is that um, while I do uh, tolerate certain Catholic theology, I actually understand it a lot better than most Protestants because of my uh, friendships and because my wife uh, personally worked at 
America, and I was uh, friends with uh, one of the uh, professors that still possibly teaches here, uh, uh, Professor John Grabowski, and uh, I've read a bit of uh, some Catholic theology in some books, and uh, I've read catechism very thoroughly. One thing that I do know is I do know Roman Catholic theology probably better than most Catholics even. Uh, And uh, I do believe in a sovereign God, and uh, Calvinism is diametrically opposed to Catholicism. Um, And there are certain things that Catholics would find appealing about my own personal view. One of them is the fact that I I do not... uh, relinquish myself solely to a 66-book canon, which most Protestants do. Most Protestants believe that the canon of Scripture is simply 66 books. And so uh, I have a Akil Shaquille. Hey, how's it going, brother? Welcome, Akil. So I, I, I do believe in a, a bulkier Bible uh, as inspired. Now, that has not that has not deterred me to, uh, that has not actually imposed upon me the need to cross the Tiber. It has not moved me close to the Tiber. It is just uh, an aspect which uh, uh, I'm not essential and which I, I do believe in a bulkier Bible that has not changed my theology. I am still a person, a man of the Reformation, particularly uh, more of an Anglican persuasion and probably Anglicans are a little closer to Catholicism, just like Lutherans are. So, uh, yes. Uh, yeah, I know that. I, that. That is true. And that's because Pentecostals actually um, are closer to fundamentalism and, uh, as uh, Baptists are, or as fundamentalist Baptists are. So, uh, but... Uh, tell you this, uh, I will not become Catholic. You know, <laughs> I just want you to know that this guy is I am absolutely reformed. I am absolutely evangelical. I'm absolutely a Protestant. I'm probably more of a mainline Protestant than an evangelical. Uh, but uh, I don't impose my personal views. Don't need to promote them. They're my personal views. I keep them close to the vest. Um, on Blog Talk Radio, you won't hear me preaching a whole bunch of Calvinism. You won't hear me preaching unless I have a friend of mine that's on as a guest and that leans towards that way. We might get into a little, uh, you know, you know, bros of Calvinism, <laughs> you know, dapping each other up kind of thing. But uh, yeah, I, uh, there are certain things about Catholicism uh, that I do not feel is a Danger as many Protestants would, and, uh, and but my issue, my issue always remains the one essential issue that should always be on every evangelical, every Protestant mind is how is man made right with God, and so that has been the only thing that has always been a deterrent for me crossing the Tiber. It will always be a concern for me crossing the Tiber because I do not believe in sacramental grace. Uh, 
didn't know that about you, Dan. Yeah, well, I, I'll tell you what, I'm always looking for guests, and whether this is involved, uh, one is Pentecostalism or some kind of really dangerous cult-like form of Pentecostal. I know the Potter's House, I believe that's uh, T.D. Jakes, isn't it? I think T.D. Jakes is uh, the guy who started the Potter's House. Uh, welcome, Spencer. <clears throat> but um, uh, I, I'm a very balanced person, and uh, and uh, there are certain things that uh, I will definitely uh, break off. Okay, no, not TV. Okay. Blame it on Mitchell. Okay, well, I mean, maybe you should come on, and I'm going to PM you then, and you can share uh, with us a little bit about the Potter's House, because that's, you know, I'm, I don't know much about it, and I'm sure the public could use learning a little bit about it. Okay, wow. All right, so uh, Isaac, you know, uh, if you want to, you can call back in and we can talk a little bit about your experience if uh, Ralph is not going to be on. And uh, you could be my fill-in guest for today. Yeah, I, yeah, uh, that's good, Spencer. Yeah, uh, I will say that I, 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 I uh, you can check out on our YouTube channel about uh, Ariel Ministries is a great messianic uh, Christian ministry that I absolutely sponsor and support. Um, Rabbi Arnold Fuckenbaum is the one who started Ariel Ministries, Jews for Jesus. Uh, chosen People Ministries are all ministries that I absolutely endorse, and along with Ariel. And I had um, a guest from Ariel Ministries maybe about a year and a half ago, and I think I posted him up on YouTube. So you can check that out. Uh, that's the, I mean, we have him in the podcast archives, but we also I put him up on YouTube where we discuss the Echad of God or the Yahid, the Yahid which is what is not used in the Shema. So, um, and uh, I think I'm actually going to do a whole podcast where I did talk about Jewishness and the Trinity. All right, so it looks like uh, 503, you're on there. Is this you, Isaac? This is me. All right, great. So uh, did you did you get the call, Ralph, or was he answering the phone? or? It went straight to voicemail. I think he's turned his phone off and he's uh he's out of the out of touch with the world. <laughs> well, I guess I have to get him another time. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely. Uh, 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 you, you left out of the oneness Pentecostal church, and was it the Potter's house or was it another church? I went to the exact same church that Ralph did. He left about six, eight months before I did, and then I left, and we kind of reconnected again, and he started his uh, blog and YouTube channel, and I started my own blog and YouTube channel, and we've kind of just been, we've been doing parallel work as far as trying to educate people uh, about that type of church, and it's funny because most of the people in our town 
are more or less familiar with the church that we left. And it, it, it was funny because you go to the barber and, you know, when you were in the church, you'd try to win them to that. He's like, Hey, you need to come to church. Uh, you need to come to abundant life and check it out. And, and they'd blow you off like, Oh yeah, sure. No big deal. Sure. And then after we both left, we would go to the same barber and they'd be like, Oh, thank goodness you got out of that church. You know, they're cold. I'm like, why didn't you tell us when we were there for 30 years? <laughs> and people knew, like they knew they were kind of weird and they were a cult and they were just being polite. You know, they don't, they don't tell you those kinds of things because you're a customer, but um, it was just, it was just funny how people have this opinion and they knew it and they just didn't, didn't get out there in public. And we're like, well, screw that. You know, we're going to go into public and we're going to tell people about this. And that's, that's kind of where the way things went. And but so yeah, it's what, what's the origins of the church? What, what, um, I, I understand it's modalist, it's one that's Pentecostal, but um, does that, uh, I mean, it's not like, uh, for example, I think uh, Phyllis Craig and Dean are also one that's Pentecostal, they, they're in the uh, United Pentecostal Church, I think, right? They're their origin came from the UPC. They were originally a member of the UPC. And about, I want to say 15 to 20 years ago, they kind of went to this point where they wanted to be independent because they were actually got, uh, they were so fundamentalist. They were completely anti-movies and TV. And the UPC was starting to accept some of that, uh, the video platform into their, uh, into their culture. They were to some degree using it in their ministry. They were, um, and our, our, our leadership was pretty much anything video was out. It was banned and they were, wow. they were anti, they were anti-internet. You know, they didn't want anybody using the internet for personal use in their homes. This was of course back when it was dial up, you know, this was the early stages, um, right. but it was very much a lot of information control. And so they, they broke from the UPC because supposedly they wanted to maintain this purity of their particular beliefs. And they, they wanted to maintain this standard and, and they couldn't do that with being a part of the UPC, but we have our own theories on that subject. Uh, Ralph thinks that possibly they got a donation from the UPC to start a home missions work. And if they left the group, they wouldn't have to pay that money back into the system. Um, that's one possibility. You can't confirm that, but that's, that's what we think. Um, so they, our pastor, well, the Bishop, the one that uh, started the church originally came out of Bakersfield, California. He, uh, went to some sort of a Bible college, I think in, in Texas. And then, uh, it may have been, I'm trying to think of the name of the guy that ran that, but anyway, so he started the church from scratch. There was nothing here in, in McMinnville that was Pentecostal until he showed up and then pretty much just rented a small room, got some converts. What's interesting is my grandmother was the very first convert in that church. Uh, she was, she was a Lutheran and she was a devout Lutheran, had uh, four kids, was divorced, kind of had a messy situation she got into a car accident and the bishop was the first person to come to the hospital, pray for her, offer some kind of support and comfort. And she was a member ever since, you know, she kind of just threw into that group wholeheartedly. 
And so I'm essentially second generation um, Pentecost. And so, you know, it was a real big scandal in my family for me to leave. But, you know, that so was. Your, your grandmother was the first convert and you were the second convert or your parents didn't convert? Well, so I, I say second generation because my parents were, they were converted out of the world. You know, they were just, um, they were just random people that came into the church. So, so my dad is first generation and my mom is technically also first generation because she was already grown by the time her grandmother came into the church. So, you know, technically, technically I'm third generation, I suppose, but just not by birth. Uh, my, my parents weren't raised in that. So I'm, more like second generation, but, um, it was, it was a pretty, like, as I, as I touched on, it was a very strict fundamentalist. They were, uh, they were very big on the 10% tithes, 5% offerings. And that was almost a mandatory thing. Like they would, I remember several times hearing messages preached. You can't be saved owing God, your your money you know you can't be saved if you owe god your 10 percent. like that's not your money that's god's he's passing it through your hands they absolutely required people to pay that 10 percent um right and that was on the gross they believe that was that was not just on your paycheck that you got after taxes that was on your gross income um and so it was it was very very oppressive especially for young families with kids and we i know at least three different families that were close friends of mine. Uh, I don't talk to them much now. They I'm fairly uh, thoroughly shunned at this point. So I have maybe five, six people that I still stay in contact with in that church, but the, um, they would, they would lose their house or their apartment. They'd have to move in with their parents and they couldn't even afford to pay rent, but they're still handing over their 15% of their income to the church. And it was just like, you could not convince them that blessings weren't eventually going to start rolling in at some point. You know, they just bought into that theory and it was like, well, we all did. You know, that was just, it's kind of like the teaching of seed money that, uh, if you sow your seed into the kingdom that you'll be blessed a hundredfold from it. That's one of those very Pentecostal teachings. Right. That was very much, you know, you can't outgive God, you know, you, you, you put your money in and it will come back to you, pressed down, shaken together and running over. I mean, we heard that over and over and over again. Um, very much a prosperity gospel uh, fallacy that it seems obvious in hindsight, but <laughs> you know, when you're when you're neck deep in it and you were born and raised in it, you just, you can't help but buy into the whole thing. Uh, it's very unfortunate. Uh, uh, you married or did you have children? So I was, I was married, uh, when I was in the church and I was married about six years approximately. Um, my wife came from another Pentecostal church in the same state. Uh, we were, there was a kind of a chain of Pentecostal churches that had fellowship with each other that didn't talk to certain other Pentecostal churches. We had our own group. There was uh, maybe five or six churches in the entire state that were kind of acceptable. So she came out of one of those churches. We got married. Um, probably it wasn't the best uh, match for each other as far as personality types. It was kind of like you're getting into your late 20s. There's a lot of social pressure to get married, to find your – 
your niche in life and so forth. And very much, you don't really have a choice. You know, it's you get married or you're kind of an outcast. So eventually you start getting that pressure. But it's difficult when you have a limited social circle. You only have a couple of churches you, you're uh, fellowshipping with. You have a very limited dating pool. And then it's, it's, it's wow. difficult. So anyway, wow. after I left the church, um, there was a lot of stress because she was still attending. And I'm looking at all these resources, why they're, why they're wrong, why they're occult. And that's just causing more, more stress. And I was not being quiet about it because I was posting stuff on Instagram. I was posting stuff on Facebook and they actually taught against Facebook. They were, they taught their members not to even get on Facebook. So most of them weren't seeing that, but the, the leadership certainly was. And eventually things just came to a head where it was not going to work out. Um, we were probably, we were not in the best situation with our marriage anyway, but we, um, we ended up divorcing in July of uh, last year. And fortunately we had no children. So it, it made oh, the whole really? process fairly smooth. You know, there wasn't a lot of difficulty in that, but pretty much went back to her home church, which I think is, is maybe they're also Pentecost. They're also oneness, but they're maybe a little bit, um, just a, overall a better, better church in terms of their community what, and how they deal with people. What was your background before, uh, this Pentecostal church? Was it always Pentecostal? They were always, um, you're talking about them or me? No, your background. Yeah. No, I was, I was born in it. Like I said, uh, my parents converted and from day one, I was in it a hundred percent. Um, they had a private school. We, I went to the private school all 12 years. It was a ACE curriculum. And yeah, that was my life from, from day one to about 34 years old. It was a hundred percent. And what? thrown into what's that. What's the name of the church? <clears throat> so it's called Abundant Life Pentecostal Church. Um, you can look wow. them up on Facebook. There, um, <laughs> there's, there's several people that have written some reviews that are more honest, and you can. It's funny to read the reviews of the church and see see who's bought into it and who hasn't. But um, yeah, so they're they're now on their second pastor. This is the uh, the bishop's son that took over. So they kept it very close to the family, um, kept it very tightly controlled. You know, you have the, the son is essentially the brainwashed version of the dad. And so they've just kept things rolling right along. And there's not much possibility of change or improvement in their doctrine or their, their methods. But, yeah, it, so, we just try uh, to. Since uh, you, you've left the church, since leaving the church. Um, uh, are you disenchanted with uh, Christianity? Uh, where where do you stand right now? So I went through a process where uh, I was actually helping to teach a Bible study to a new convert, and we were discussing some of the the, the teachings of the Pentecostal Church, and so they brought up some issues about like speaking in tongues and some of the, some of the teachings that were a little bit radical. And I pretty much went home, started Googling it, started looking at the Pentecostal teachings. And I was like, wow, you know, there's, 
there's actually some really convincing arguments on both sides of it. Um, mm. It sounds really, you know, hey, there's some other sides to this thing. So I started digging, and I very quickly saw the flaws in the Pentecostal movement, saw how obviously it's man-made. Um, so what I did is once I was in that mindset to start exploring and, and really digging into things, then I just kept going outward and I said, I'm not stopping here. I'm going to keep going. And I looked at what is the first thing that I can prove is real? What is the first thing that I can prove is true uh, via evidence? And so I, I started going into, you know, the basis of Christianity, the basis of the New Testament is anchored on the Old Testament. You, you really can't have a New Testament without the history of the Old Testament, right? It's, they're very much uh, attached to each other, so to speak. Well, right. I started getting into what can, I, what can I prove that occurred in the Old Testament, and that's where I got into did Noah's flood ever really happen? Did the Garden of Eden, is that a literal event? Can we prove that this is this is what happened? And spent months really getting into the history of genetics and the, the concepts of evolution. And I started looking at how we can look at the human genome, uh, especially the Human Genome Project that came out in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and I was like, wow, you know, it's we can see very clearly in the genetic history that if a, if a particular race or a particular species becomes condensed down to just a few breeding pairs, say like, let's say for example, there's two leopards that come off the ark or there's two uh, tigers or whatever the unclean animals were, then wow. we would see that genetic bottleneck in their, in their genetics. We would see where they started inbreeding and they became very incestuous because they were essentially passing down the same sets of chromosomes among multiple generations. And so we can see that with certain species, but we certainly do not see that with the broad spectrum of animals that are on the planet. So if we had two created adult pairs or one created adult pair, one, one human male and female, one um, pair of every species on the planet from the Garden of Eden, we would see this marker, this bottleneck where they where they had an inbreeding uh, in their in their makeup, and this causes all these genetic deformities, causes all these markers to appear, and we do not see that at all. And what we see, in fact, is that the human race is so clearly beyond doubt. We are related to the chimpanzees and the bonobos and the other primates, and this is this is pretty much like a. It was just so obvious to me upon reading the evidence. It was like, wow, you know, human chromosome number two is a is an almost exact match of chimpanzee chromosome thirteen, and then we show how we went from the twenty two chromosomes to twenty three, or vice versa. There was a there was a process there where that actually jumped and we changed the number of chromosomes in our DNA. And it was like, wow, you know, this is, this is right here. Anybody can look this up. And it was like, so 
then of course you get into many different uh, Christians have seen that same problem. And so the Catholic church in particular has come to the point where they accept the concept of evolution as the origin of life. The Jesuits are the same. Several different Protestant groups do the same thing. And they've come to look at the garden of Eden and creation story as a, uh, as an allegorical version. You know, this is a story about how the human race came to moral understanding of itself and, uh, the the Noah's Ark story is entirely a allegorical story, and that's how they more or less explain that. To me, I don't feel like that's a good enough explanation. Uh, for me personally, I just feel like the whole thing is mythological in nature, and it's entirely man-made. To me, based on the evidence that I found, and so I pretty much said, okay. At this point, I can't prove that anything supernatural has actually ever been proven to exist. Um, I I can't see that that's ever been strongly demonstrated. So I have to say I could, I got to walk away from it completely. And and from that point, that's that's where I that's where I ended up. <laughs> so you're an agnostic or atheist or you are leaning yeah. I I would say at this point um until until we see something very clear that shows that the supernatural impacts our world then I have to say that I'm an atheist um and that's just based on what I can what I can demonstrate is is reality I can't I can't force myself to accept this this concept of a god when when so much of it is completely uh, man-made, you know, it's, it's everything in the Bible points to a human being writing it. Um, they had no knowledge in the Bible besides what they could have known at the time. Um, I think it's very telling that like the angel stood outside the garden of Eden and he waved a flaming sword, you know, and that's very impressive to a bronze age sheep herder to have a flaming sword it's not impressive to us in the 21st century because we're like, yeah, human beings had swords back then, but you know, an angel doesn't need a sword. He, he can just poke his finger through your skull and turn you off. Like he's a supernatural right. being. Why does he need a sword? This is very much a, you know, it's, it's a, it's a storytelling mechanic. It's, it's, right. it's a, uh, what we call an anachronism. So you're taking, human technology and injecting it into the supernatural when angels and demons don't need swords to fight each other and they don't need swords to fight humans. It's, it's completely a person's, um, you know, method you know, of telling it. You know, you know what we call that in the theological uh, realm? We call it anthropomorphism. Sure. You know what yeah, it, it, that, uh, for example, uh, You're you're taking human about, characteristics and putting them on something that's not human, right? Or animal, or even animal, you know, any type of char- characteristic of the creation, and then opposing it upon supernatural being or God Himself. Even I mean, uh, sure. Uh, Dr. Walter Martin once said uh, concerning the psalm, you know, it, it describes God as being uh, having the wings of eagles and. Uh, that doesn't make God a giant chicken. You know, that's not 
um, particularly the new pastor, the son that took over. Uh, he's he's just really he's a he's a contractor. He builds houses. He's not really a theologian, and he's not really a counselor. But in the in the cold, that is your only option. You don't go to you know a psychologist. You don't go to a psychiatrist. You know that's very much. You know, the world does that, but we don't do that. We, we All our answers come from the church. Um, but certainly it was also a great deal of stress. Um, she being she was completely invested in that cult, and she was completely sold on the idea of Pentecostalism. So the, for her, the only choice was to go back home, to go back to her original pastor and her family and get that support group. So So really, you know, I think that was – that was inevitable. I don't think there was really any way around that. Um, I do feel like we're both happier at this point. Um, but definitely that is, that is a flaw of that particular group is this pressure to conform and to get into a relationship when maybe, maybe that's not the best option for you. And, you know, you're very much pressured, have kids, you know, have a lot of kids and, Oh, you have marriage problem. I mean, this is literally the advice we got in a counseling session was oh you guys don't have a lot to talk about and you're you're not you don't have a lot to discuss in your daily life and she's staying at home and you're going to work we'll have a couple of kids you know and then she'll be busy with the kids and then you'll have stuff to talk about the kids life and, and it's like if you have a marriage that's not quite in good territory the last thing you want to do is start having kids <laughs> like that's just but uh that was pretty much what we dealt with so now we don't deal with it anymore but yeah, yeah that's... Uh, once again, what you just said uh, is something that I can identify with. Um, for the Jehovah's Witnesses, we also, you know, they they're not experienced in handling marriage counseling, and they will of course try to handle it in house and not suggest, you know, marriage therapy outside of the cult. And that's how cults, uh, and 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 no doubt. Involving children in, in the marriage would have just uh, locked you in, but locked you in for all the wrong reasons because it would have harmed the children, uh, especially if you, you know, if you guys would have went separate ways as far as, you know, your thinking, your aspirations, and uh, and your goals. And so, I mean, that would that was really advice. Something uh, else I wanted uh, to bring up. Uh, oh, go you ahead. And, you and Ralph, you and Ralph came out of the out of the club together. Are there others also that you guys all came out from the same church? Are there others other than you and Ralph? Yes, we. There's there's been there's been there really there's been hundreds of people. Um, it, it's just sometimes it's very difficult to reconnect with people when it's been years since uh, they left and you've cut all communications and reconnecting can be difficult. And that's where I guess Facebook was a real boon was um, that ability for people to, to find each other again. And so we have a group that's actually, we have a specific Facebook group just for people that left that exact church, um, BC and left Pentecost. But there's actually, our group is just for this one church and there's about 30, 35 people just in that group. Um, and we all more or less stay in contact to some degree with each other. Um, wow, my my current girlfriend uh, actually also came out of that I church. So, 
how large did the church become? Because, I mean, for you to have a whole group of people that have left the church uh, have a, a Facebook group together, it has to be, you know, large enough to uh, handle those losses and still exist. Right. They they have experienced – I think there's a um, there's a phenomenon with the Pentecostals that they do drive large numbers primarily because they reach out to – people that are um, perhaps impoverished or they need to get some kind of a connection to a group and they're, they're lonely. They don't pick and choose. They just go out there and they grab everyone that'll say yes. And they get them in the church. Um, so it's a very aggressive, uh, very aggressive evangelical campaign. Um, they have a very aggressive Sunday school program. They go out there and they scoop kids up by the dozens and they bust them in and they brainwash them. So right now, uh, my best guess, um, I would say they're running anywhere from 150 to 170 people. Uh, they have a fairly, fairly good-sized sanctuary. Uh, they actually designed it so that the gymnasium has, a, has kind of a collapsing wall between the gymnasium and the sanctuary so they can expand seating relatively easily. And they have, they have at least four, maybe five Sunday school buses they run them to multiple cities and they just bring kids in a hundred at a time. Uh, the seven to 12 group is, you know, the popular one. And, and they have people that are currently married couples in their churches that were originally Sunday school kids that are now, you know, dedicated members. So they're playing the long game of grabbing them while they're young, brainwashing them and then raising them into their, their teens and young adulthood to be uh, dedicated members. So, so yeah, they're, they're at this team, they're at this tipping point where they might buy into another building and try to expand. So they are still growing. And that's part of the danger that Ralph and I are trying to be more public and vocal about is we have to try and prevent them from getting more traction than they already do, because, you know, they're just, (laughs) they're just pretty much, infecting people's lives and there's not really any gain to it. Um, but it's definitely, it's definitely a growth industry. It's very much what Pentecostalism did in the, the turn of the century. They just grabbed everyone that was, you know, lower class impoverished. And they said, you know what, you're all a part of the group. Come on in. And they, they got that viral growth that came out of that, that same time period. They're, they're following that same method of just aggressively chase everyone that can, uh, that's willing to show up. So it is a large, and there's a lot of people that have left the group that I don't really even have contact with. They're just, you know, there's, um, actually my cousin left many, many years ago and I just recently reconnected with her. You know, she moved to New York city, just other side of the country, just got away from them completely and that's very much sometimes the the response is people literally can't live in the same town as this church mm-hmm. because they run into people that are still in there and they feel ashamed and they feel pressured and they literally just have to get out of the state to to shed that out of their life. And I have perhaps a little bit different personality and I'm I'm the opposite. I'm perfectly happy to show up at the Mexican restaurant they go to right after Sunday morning church and I'll wave at all of them as they walk in the door. You know, and I, I have the mentality, I'm not going anywhere, you know, like this is, this right. is my home too. 
and you guys, you know, you guys can, you know, give me the hairy eyeball all day long. I'm just, I have, I don't have a problem. You know, I'm not the one who's screwing up people's lives here, so I have no guilt. So it's, um, but yeah, it's definitely a, a lot of people that have had their lives impacted, and just like the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses, we're seeing a larger and larger wave of the young people that are perfectly happy to walk away from it all. And people have access to the internet on their phones and with social media, we're seeing a larger amount of sharing of information. And that's been a huge boon to this exposing this type of movement. Uh, Like Daniel Dennett says, you know, for thousands of years, religion has had this captive audience where nobody had access to any information or theology. Now with the internet, what's what's true will remain and what's not true will dissolve (laughs) there's no other option because knowledge continues to disseminate itself and people have access to it there's always people you'll always have people that buy into it and they just don't care they don't care to learn more they're happy to stay where they're at and there's always people that are willing to dig into it and find out more so it's just just a matter of time but eventually these groups will 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 dissolve away. We can only hope. <laughs> yeah, uh, critical thinking is now becoming more commonplace. At one time, it was more of a dinosaur amongst the populace, but uh, I will say that the Internet now uh, gives a fair competition of ideas. And um, only lazy thinkers um, will be victims, victims of totalitarianism. And uh, it's it's almost like um, sometimes I really you feel sorry for people, but you don't. You don't feel sorry for them because uh, sometimes we are our own worst enemies. If you find yourself in a predicament, it's largely because you've chosen an area of ignorance, or you've decided that that this is where you're comfortable. And I, I will say that um, it's commonplace not just in the cults, but even uh, mainstream Christians. Um, we choose to be ignorant. We choose to just uh, uh, accept things as they are rather than investigate. And um, and the Bible itself tells you that you should examine all things. And nothing should fall on, outside of the arena of scrutiny, including itself. <clears throat> so um, the Internet has has enabled many to now scrutinize all ideologies and to make an assessment on what they're going to do with that. Only lazy people will just accept things as it is. I, I hate to say, you know, me and my father-in-law were talking about this because um, he has a mutual friend who is still a Jehovah's Witness. And she's a Jehovah's Witness only because it's the only social arena. And uh, yeah. some, cults, some cults will do that. They they operate upon social arena. Uh, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses are more of a knowledge-based cult. That is that they will give you, I'm not saying that they have knowledge, I'm just saying that they will give you false information and make what you know look or appear to be foolish. Uh, only upon an actual investigation can you counter uh, their fake news, so to speak. So, but um, there are yeah. cults that tug at your heart, like uh, Mormonism is more about emotion. Uh, some, you know, 
when I've had the Mormons at my house, they, the Mormons' approach is, oh, uh, they'll give you a Book of Mormon. They'll just say, pray, uh, pray that the Book of Mormon is true. Instead of praying on whether it's true, pray that it is true. <laughs> so right. it's almost like condition yourself. You know, a mantra, this is true, this is true, this is true. And that's really just a, a, a brainwashing technique as opposed to testing the Book of Mormon and designing under scrutiny and examination whether or not it is true. And so um, the, the great thing about the Internet is that now we have at our fingertips uh, lots of information that gives us the ability to make those assessments. I, I'm, I'm going to see if anybody wants to talk to you, Isaac. Sure. The number is everyone on Facebook and those who are on Blog Talk Radio, because we only have 24 minutes left, uh, is 347-934-0379. 347-934-0379 and press 1, press 1 afterwards so that you can talk to uh, Isaac or myself if you have any comments or questions. Oh, great. I'm, I'm glad you were invited, Cheryl, by Marsha. So um, we have a, a bunch of people here on Facebook. I'm, I also do it by Facebook Live, as you can see. Oh, we have a bunch of people uh, calling in. All right, so uh, let me go in. 562, you're on the air. Hello? Uh, hello. Yes. Yeah, you're on the air, 562. Oh, am I on the Yes. So, any questions or comments? Yes. Um, this is in regards to the Mexican restaurant claim. The which claim? Um, Isaac was. Um, he had made a claim about when he went to a Mexican restaurant, and he said that like he could care less about um, the Mexican people looking at him weird. No, he wasn't saying. He didn't say the Mexican people. He might have misunderstood what he said. Yeah, so let me clarify just in case that didn't come through correctly. So the local church leadership always goes to lunch at the same place every Sunday afternoon. So church gets out. You can count on your watch, 1215. They're all going to show up at this particular Mexican restaurant. It's a tradition. And, you know, the, the members of the coal want to hang out with. <clears throat> the church leadership, so they, they all show up too. You'll see 25, 30 people from the church every single Sunday at this particular place. So I will go there for lunch, and I will get a booth by the door, and I will wave at everyone that comes in. And you know, and so what I said was I really don't care if they try to, if they feel uncomfortable or if, you know, it's kind of the confrontational. I'm saying I'm here. You guys want to go to lunch at your favorite restaurant? Guess what? I'm the evidence that you're wrong. That that's pretty much what the the whole point of that comment was. Oh, okay, yeah, I had misclarified that. Yeah, no problem. All right, thank you for calling. All right, please. Uh, all right, two one three, you're on the air. Two one three. Oh, they six one nine, you're on the air. Hold on. <laughs> Six one nine, you're on the air. Well, 
all those people hung up. <laughs> Maybe they were all upset that you was insulting Mexicans, Isaac. <laughs> Evidently. <laughs> I don't know what happened. <laughs> All right, so uh, if anybody has a question or comment, find the, the number three four seven nine three four zero three seven nine. And uh, um, just, just FYI, I'm Latino, so... <laughs> um, if you have any questions or comments, go ahead and call that number and press one three four seven nine three four zero three seven nine. And we're talking about the uh, about the one that's Pentecostal cult in his town. And there goes six one nine is back on the air. Hello six one nine, you're on the air. Penis. Yeah. Six one nine. Wow, they're having a hard time. All right, let me go back to 213. You're on the air. Hello? Venus, 213. Greetings. What's going on? People are popping on and popping off. Isaac, do you got people of your cult trolling my show now? (laughs) I wouldn't think so. Like I said, most of them... um... Most of them don't really get on Facebook that much, so. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. I don't know. I might have some other people trolling the show. But uh, I know that uh, a couple of people have come on and gotten off and come back on and gotten off. Something yeah, else I wanted cool. to mention uh, before we get too far off. Um, I wanted to tell the story of what what was the final straw for um, for when Ralph left. They, it was, it's kind of an interesting story. A little bit tragic as well, but the um, so Ralph's mother was diagnosed with lung cancer um, a few years back, and she was an older woman, had smoked a lot, and so you know it was it was a situation where she was coming to church, and she was a regular attendee, she was very faithful. She would come to church with oxygen tanks, and they'd have to sometimes change the tanks in the middle of service. She was barely getting by, even with the oxygen feed. When she uh, was getting to the late stages, and it was very, it was very difficult for her to even sometimes come to church. Ralph would stay home and take care of his mother, and you know that's what that's what everyone should do. You take care of your parents when they're they're on the on the way out. Well, the church leadership was very much like, hey, you shouldn't be skipping church. You know, you need to be in church. <laughs> you know, like leave your mother at home right. and, and come to be faithful every twice a week, three times a week. And so when she eventually passed, you know, it was a big fight over the memorial service. You know, they, they had several backslidden kids that had had been apostated from that church. And they were like, well, we can't have that person speak at the memorial because who knows what they're going to say. They do Hmm. show up. They need to wear the correct clothes. They can't just show up with, you know, rings and tattoos and, and, and shorts and, and they started putting all these rules on the memorial service for his mom. And, and that was it. Like it just, that was the final straw. (laughs) You know, when you started messing with, with his mom, it was like, okay, you guys, you guys just, just mess with the wrong person. And so, and so he was out at that point, but that was, that was very much the breaking point was when they started telling him to show up to church and leave his mom at home. And then they started putting rules on, on the memorial service. So, that tells you the kind of person that you're we're dealing with here with with that group. So I just wanted to share that because that's 
it's, it's always a little bit shocking, but it's Christian love. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly you know, the opposite. Uh, yeah, cult, cults have this "What have you done for me lately?" attitude. Um, uh, for Jehovah's Witnesses, I, everything you're saying, like I said, it's it's just hitting home. Uh, for Jehovah's Witnesses, the same thing about funerals. Same thing about uh, unbelievers speaking at a funeral. Uh, in fact, I'll tell you what. This is what Jehovah's Witnesses do at funerals. Uh, no one can speak at a funeral. It's not random. No relatives, none of that. Um, the only one that can speak at a funeral for a Jehovah Witness funeral, a Jehovah Witness that died in good standing, would be the elder of the congregation. So right. all you can hear at a Jehovah Witness funeral is not the people that in life love the person and is now sharing their feelings and emotions with this person. What you'll have in a Jehovah Witness funeral is the elder of the congregation that the person that died went to will come up there and give a sermon or what they call talk for about 30 minutes to share what this person believes. And it's basically an evangelistic moment. You know, I'm here to tell you about what this person in the casket believes so that you can see her one day because if you don't believe what she believes, you're dead meat. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what they do and no different at all. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's sad because it's nothing about the person is really all about them uh, spewing their spiel and uh, presenting their gospel. Um, and, and just a, it's a conversion moment, a way uh, to, to, to work on the people's emotions, people that are, of course, at a funeral are sad and somber and thinking about death to try to capitalize on their emotions to try to get them to convert. And uh, that's yeah. what cults do. You know, and, and that's exactly what you just described. Um, and that's sad that that happened with Ralph and his family. But what do you expect from a, um, you know, just uh, high-control groups? You know, they, they're always bent on growing their cause. I'm actually surprised that they haven't gotten even bigger, you know, than 100, 150. Um, Pentecostals generally can have mega church status, but I can see with all the birds, uh, all the bridges they're burning, um, and the added rules. Are, are they also? They don't believe in women wearing pants in, in church. Is that one of the rules too? Yeah, I, we've often Ralph and I have theorized that they're trying to take 1940s America and just clone it wholesale. So they're very much women can't cut their hair at all. Scissors can't even touch your hair. Um, Don't try to definitely don't wear anything that a guy can wear. Man's shirts, suits, pants, doesn't matter. If it's men's clothes, you're off. No jewelry whatsoever. Uh, No shiny objects in your hair. There's, you know, you can't even color your hair. Don't put on any kind of makeup whatsoever. It's it's a hundred percent trying to make. Um, same for the men. You know, there's all kinds of rules about no facial hair whatsoever. You your hair mm. has to be kept off the collar line. It has to be cropped short. Wow. Um, no, you know, they'll even talk about putting hair products like gel 
and styling your hair uh, for guys. You know, don't put all those mousse in there and swirl it up. And, and you know, they'll get up in the pulp and be like, you know, that's that's what Hollywood does. And, and that I tell you what, that's that's what the homosexuals are doing down there at the fashion show. And, and we ain't going to have none of that in our – and this, this is exactly what they'll say. Um, it's very much – it's very much taking 1930 America and saying we're going to clone this precisely and we're going to get this look down and everyone follows the uniform or, or you're in, you're in hot water. <laughs> That's pretty much it. So it's, it's, it's very much, uh, everyone followed this, this particular formula and that's the only way, or there's, there was no flexibility whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, like I said, that, that once again is, just like uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses. I know that, uh, see, I have a beard, and it's kind of a little bit of a rebellion to wear a beard because we're not allowed to wear beards. We're supposed to be clean-shaven when we were Jehovah's Witnesses. And, of course, you couldn't wear your hair long if you were a guy, that kind of stuff. Same same kind of stuff. Uh, you know, so, uh, just a means of control. They can, they can control your grooming. They can control a lot of things. Um, now, a question for you. Last, hold on. We have down to the last ten minutes. I want to make sure that we get a call as an opportunity. And I have a, a guy who regularly calls, and he always has a question. So um, this is the last opportunity to go ahead and talk to Isaac. This is not Rob. This is Isaac. The number is three four seven nine three four zero three seven nine. Press one if you have a comment or question for Isaac uh, about his experience and his uh, a oneness Pentecostal cult. saying uh have you ever heard of the the bite model have you ever used the bite model or um yeah i know yes okay yeah i I actually interviewed him maybe about 10 years ago yes you know so uh yeah yeah he has a he has actually now i think he has well yes i think he has a third book but he has he had two books um, before before Stephen Hassan's fight model was Robert Tilton and Tilton uh, uh, Tilton I mean Chilton Chilton's uh, uh, book was uh, where Stephen Hassan kind of uh, fashioned some of uh, his fight models from but yeah absolutely all 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 cults pretty much can fit in to the fight model uh, or I always say. Um, there are three things you can be sure that cults will usually have. They will have, first of all, a psychological manipulation. That is that they want to uh, control uh, your mind. Sociological manipulation. They want to control your uh, associations, your family, your relatives, any uh, any communications that you have with other people in the outside world, outside of the cult, they want you to keep those social interactions within the cult. And then I I would say theological manipulation where they misrepresent um, Christian views or Christian history in order to formulate their own revisionistic uh, facsimile of what they believe Christianity should appear, which is what the cult presents as. Christianity, and this is the same also with Islamic cults. Uh, Nation of Islam, five percenters, 
are not true representations of, you know, uh, Sunni and Shiite Islam, which are actually true Islam and, uh, you know, descended from Muhammad. Uh, and the same thing could be said also for Buddhism and, and uh, other New Age cults, which uh, devolve, they, 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 they are offshoots from the mainstream of that particular belief system and misrepresented. All right, nobody has any questions. Uh, last eight minutes, for, you know, speak now, forever hold your peace, 347-934-0379 and press one. So have you bought uh, Stephen's books? You know, I haven't bought any of his books. I, I mainly was interested in just his um, his methods of screening what groups are, you know, fall into that category. And I only just discovered him really uh, a few months back. And so I've been, I actually posted, um, uh, I briefly entertained the idea of going into a podcast and um, I probably don't really have the time to maintain it, but I did a podcast episode where I went through the bite model step by step and just line by line, you know, described how it matches up with the church. And so that was pretty much the limit of my experience was just seeing just how much of that applied directly. Um, but of course, you know, you try and share that information with someone that's neck deep in it. And it's just like, you know, the concept of doubting what they're in is, is so terrifying that you might as well not even bother trying, but yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it would be nice to have that objective neutral third party tool to say, Hey, look at this, this scorecard right here and see how this all matches up. But Again, you can only do that with people that are willing to think outside the box side of their current experience and are willing to really explore those options. Um, something else that I, I, <laughs> I brought up in one of my videos was part of the reason that I was more open-minded at that particular time in my life was that we had, a, we had an evangelist come through and he was speaking in the church and he loved to put that microphone really close to his mouth and just scream and yell. And, and it got to where it was almost painful to come to church because there was so much, they crank up the volume to maximum. And um, especially during the song service and so forth, he started wearing earplugs, you know, and, and Ralph did the same thing. We, we would come to church wearing earplugs. And after a couple of weeks of doing that, you know, good 35 decibel reduction earplugs, you start to actually process what's going on. Um, you're not being, you know, you're not being hammered with this, this hypnotism of, of the volume. And instead you're just kind of like, you're evaluating what's happening. And from that point, you can pretty much, uh, get into a mindset where you can, you can say, Hey, what, you know, this isn't the spirit. This is just all generated by, by the musicians and by the, the tone of mm-hmm. voice and then the, the cadence of the speaking and, and that volume can override all your critical thinking, but wearing earplugs for two weeks to a month can actually make the difference to get you into that mindset to start actually thinking about what you're doing and saying and, and what they're doing and saying. Um, it, it, sometimes it's just the smallest things that can make all the difference. You know, um, but uh, yeah. I don't know if you uh, Hank Hanegraaff from CRI. Now, I don't like to endorse Hank nowadays because he's gone Greek Orthodox, but Hank uh, wrote a book called Counterfeit Christianity a long time ago. I think it was in the 90s. 
And uh, uh, he, he took Walter Martin's title, The Bible Answer Man. But um, uh, Hank Hanegraaff, of course, talked about how Pentecostalism sometimes uses methods of mass hypnosis. And so uh, one of the things that, of course, it's, it's very showmanship and uh, and so people will believe a lot of things because they are not necessarily hypnotized like you know zombies, but they are induced into a euphoria, and the euphoria yeah. dictation for their reality as opposed to reality um, dictating um, you know reality dictating itself. So, uh, but yeah, Hank Hanegraaff, uh, CRI called counterfeit. Christianity. I think at the time it was all about word faith stuff, word faith Pentecostalism, and Kenneth Copeland and Benny Hinn and that kind of stuff. His criticism. All right. Well, I think this is. Uh, hold on. Uh, is this Brian? Hi there. Yeah. Hi. Uh, hi, Gus. Yeah, and, you're right uh, at the line. We only got. Yeah, I, I know. There's just a minute or two left. Uh, right. I, I want to ask a question of uh, this gentleman. I, I guess the the. This is a fill-in guest, right? The the original yeah, I, guy didn't make it. Right? Isaac so Isaac, hey, thanks for uh, thanks for filling in uh, there, Isaac. I try to listen to Gus's uh, show every week if I can, uh, and so, most of us here that listen to Gus, uh, not all, but most of us are ex-witnesses. And one thing I'm always very curious about when uh, he's interviewing people from uh, some of the other uh, ex-members of some of the other cults. I'm always curious, how did, in, in back in your days when you were ardent member, how did you people view Jehovah's Witnesses? Like when they would come to your door and all of that, what, what sort of, did, what was your impression of, of Witnesses uh, and the whole idea of uh, public evangelism and door-to-door evangelism and all that? How did you guys view us back then? Well, we certainly had our own door-to-door evangelism, and they still do. Every Saturday afternoon, they they go out there and they hit neighborhoods by the dozens, and they do the exact same thing you guys do. So we have no problem with your methods. You were just competition. Um, And, of course, you were a different theology completely. You know, we looked at Jehovah's Witnesses as just blatant heretics. You're going to hell. Um, we very much thought of Jehovah's Witnesses as just getting the whole message wrong, uh, the whole concept of of Jehovah's Witness uh, theology was just, you know, they told us don't even, don't even research it, don't even read their books, don't read their literature, don't be curious about it. You know, that was very much the focus, but the first thing they taught us was they're just wrong, they're misguided. Um, you know, there were times when I even had a sit-down conversation with Jehovah's Witnesses, and I would try to try to teach them, you know, the concept of oneness Pentecostalism from the Bible, and we get nowhere because we're both coming from completely opposite mentalities, and we're just talking past each other. So, yeah, that's pretty much it. We we looked at it as they're just poor, misguided souls. They're they're we we applauded the work ethic to go out there and try to reach people. You're just doing it for the wrong reason. You know that was that was pretty much it. Well, that that's interesting. Uh, where I live, um, I've ne- the only other people that have ever 
knocked on my door or I've seen doing public ministry are, of course, Mormons. And one time we had some Christian Reformed people do the odd thing once in a while. And the odd... We're we're about to get... We out of time? Here, so. Yeah, we're out of time. Okay. Um, yeah, but uh, uh, thanks, Isaac, for, for filling in. I'll, I'll definitely change the title for the podcast to Isaac Coverstone. And uh, I just want to thank you for being here and being a great person oh, thank for you. Ralph. And um, is there anything you want to plug? Uh, you know, if uh, if you want to check out my channel, if you want to hear my story from my own mouth, um, my YouTube channel is the same as my name, Isaac Coverstone, just how it sounds. And my, um, you can definitely find links to my blog as well, which isn't as active as I liked it to be. But, um, yeah, feel free to drop by and just hear my story and, and, and what it was all about. But that's pretty much it. Not a whole lot going right. on. All right, everyone. We'll see Cynthia Luna next week. Ex-Jehovah Witness. Same bat time, same bat channel, 1 o'clock Eastern time. You all have a blessed day. Bye-bye.